I liken it to like war where everyone comes in, you know, and they're just like, it's, we're getting killed out there. Like people are dying left and right. It's bloody. We're getting it from all angles. And it's just having that sense of like calmness and groundedness to be like, we are in no different shape. Like this is part of the ride is so strengthening and like grounding. If you're not super technical, sales is a great way to get your foot in the door in the startup world. That's how I got my start at Yelp. But what happens when you have to sell a very technical product to a very technical audience? Today, Ben Solari joins us to talk about leading sales teams at Data Robot and Jellyfish, two products aimed at engineering leaders. Welcome to Grow and Tell, the show where we tell the growth stories of the revenue leaders behind today's successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakoff. Ben Solari started as an equities trader before jumping into B2B sales at Insight Squared. He later joined Data Robot, an AI data platform, to lead their inside sales team. After four years in that role, he joined Jellyfish as VP of Sales, where he's been leading their Boston-based sales team for nearly four years. Jellyfish is an intelligence platform for engineering teams. Think Salesforce, but for managing engineers. Ben joined me to talk about Data Robot and Jellyfish's early go-to-market strategies, selling to technical leaders, and the first task for any sales leader at a startup. I hope you enjoy our chat. I'd love to start the conversation with how you got into sales. Because I think before your first sales job, you were actually like in, in equity trading and sort of more on the finance side of things. Can you talk about kind of how, how you got into the world of, of software sales? Yeah, it was, it was by accident for sure. In college, I started writing fundamental analysis papers on equities. So I did like equity research on the side. Seeking Alpha was a website in the Facebook IPO 2012 was like, coming up and I did a lot of IPO related research with them and found myself doing equity trading out of school and did that for a few years. And at the time, like startup weekends and lean startups, and there was kind of some grassroots tech ecosystem that was kind of happening in New York City. And I'd always been very entrepreneurial started to find myself in these like lean startup weekends and hackathons and stuff and go coinciding pretty much with like the burnout of uh, short-term equity trading. It was my kind of interest in starting a company uh, was, was ramping up. And so I had been looking to start a company, looking like Boston was a good place to, to do it and was calling around my network to just find a job basically you know, I want to start a company right off the bat. Turns out you have to pay rent. You know, I didn't really have much credentials to like raise around at the time. And so a friend of mine, Dave Miller, was interning at a company while he was at uh, HBS, it was Insight Squared. That was sales and marketing analytics. I don't know if you ran into them from your lattice days. Yeah, yeah, definitely familiar yeah. with them. So the BI analytics space. And basically, he's like, if you want to get your foot in the door, sales is a good way to join one of these startups and they were around series B at the time. And that was 2014, kind of the BI like Tableau was like one of the hottest companies kind of up and coming at the time. Salesforce was, was early in kind of establishing like major dominance with sales and marketing and, and that whole ecosystem was, was, was upbringing. So yeah, kind of locked into a foot in the door, start as a BDR and I think probably a few things from equity trading helped. One was certainly stress management, which, you know, there was like no salary, eat what you kill, you know, at the end of the month, whatever you made, half went to the family office, half went to you. So it was very culture of meritocracy. And that kind of was rooted in, you know, the way that I enjoyed working was like a meritocratic environment. And also just having strong maybe first principles perspective on asking why questions, digging in. I think early in my tenure at Insight Squared, I came into a Series B company. They're all kind of messy. There wasn't, you know, ton of process there. But I noticed that a lot of people were doing things very linearly. Like, oh, you get the lead list in the morning. Like they had a content engine that was pretty insane. Early in the B2B lifecycle, there was some really nifty marketers and they built a pretty good lead and content engine there. So people would wake up, come in, 
just dial the MQLs for the day. And I think like I was definitely asking kind of questions around why we do certain things, surfing through the CRM, trying to see what t- stones were unturned. And I think, you know, they were very transparent and competitive there as a culture. And so actually like the insight squared sales DNA, there's a lot of people that I've stayed very close with in tech, hired quite a bit of folks over data robot. A lot of my early team was actually a lot of my peers there who, you know, I think that was a very good kind of sales MBA because you're selling to, to sales leaders there. So yeah, that, that brought me to uh, the data robot. That's where kind of reset in terms of there was nothing. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> There was nothing yeah. there. The, no machine, no, no engine. Data robot and jellyfish were both around the same place as far as when I joined them. It was like the first 20 or so customers. So it was like just exiting founder-led sales. And data robot was 2016. Jellyfish was 2020. Both of those were kind of founder-led and then came in as those companies were trying to kind of establish actual go-to-market processes and engines. Yeah, It's a story that really resonates with me because I feel like most, I don't know, business people who are trying to break into tech, like I started as an SDR too, essentially at Yelp and sort of that was my my way in. And then I didn't start, you know, I didn't go deep, super deep into sales, but I went into marketing. And so, yeah, I think just like smart people who want to break into tech and sort of can figure things out and and disrupt kind of the status quo at the company is like the best way to kind of break in as your story kind of says is is like get your feet in the door as an SDR and then start trying to make things you know ha- happen as you go and you must have been pretty successful because I think you're only at Insight Squared for like a little under 2 years and then you went to to Data Robot and you know you were working in machine learning and AI long before kind of the the current hype cycle that we're in and you started to touch on the story a little bit, but like what were those early days of, of data robot like, and what made you transition away from inside square? Cause it seemed like you had a good thing going over there too. Yeah. I mean, the data robot story is interesting because it came at a time when I was only in Boston for two years. So I hadn't really laid up much of a network yet. And they were actually one of my customers at insight squared. They bought insight squared for me and they had, come onto my radar right around their series a and i just thought that they were a very that was a very unique space and so i had stopped by their office in person i dropped off a few books that i had read that i liked with the sales and marketing leaders over there so i planted some seeds maybe six months to a year before i ended up joining them i think a lot of candidates that i talked to that are in the startup space that are looking for their next company my main advice for establishing criteria that's important to you when you're thinking about what company to join is having that kind of investor's mindset. And even though you're not a venture capitalist, if you're joining a company with your time in an area, often in your career where those are very finite and valuable years, you're in, certainly investing in that company. And so there are some facets about that company that should excite you, that you should have some conviction in, even early on in kind of selecting that company. And I think definitely there's always luck involved, but Data Robot for sure was one where it felt like it would be a good investment. You know, if, if I had money to invest early on, looking at the potential breadth and depth of use cases that you could solve with that. You know, I kind of had that investor's mindset mentality. And then I've spent some try- time trying to kind of figure out the product that Data Robot actually sells. And like the words I kept seeing, like on the website, you know, automated machine learning. And that's kind of how you describe the category. And so, from my understanding, it's kind of like a system that helps companies run different data sets and I guess train their machine learning data. Did I get that right? Is that, is that actually what, what the product does? Like, what did it look like kind of in those early days? Yeah. So, Data Robot came out of, what was called uh, Kaggle competitions. Uh, Kaggle was a global open kind of data science competition network that private companies could sponsor problems for a community of folks to solve. Um, so yeah, think of it almost like a spelling bee <laughs> where you don't know how to what, what, what words to ask how to spell, but you've got some ideas of 
a bunch of different people that can kind of take a crack at it and sponsored by a company who's looking to solve a certain problem. Uh, the founders came from that space where the premise of the product was partially them stringing together a bunch of computers to try parallel attempts of automating what a data scientist would would do by hand. And they were very early on, pretty much the pioneers of bringing automation to data science. And now you see with LLMs and the advancements now where you have like, you know, algorithms that are tuning algorithms or giving a feedback loop that's automated. DataRobot was very early, if not the pioneer in kind of thinking in that direction, but they were doing it for what's called supervised machine learning problems. And so the easiest way to describe that is you have a series of observations in the past. So let's say it's uh, loans that you made or leads that came in. So like lead scoring and lead conversion was actually like a very prominent use case. You've got a bunch of observations and you have attributes about those observations. So like where this person lived, how much money they made, or for a lead, it's like what their title was. Then you have an outcome that lead converted, that loan was either successful or defaulted. And so what DataRobot did as a product is it ingested these static spreadsheets that had observations and outcomes. And it basically competed you know, hundreds or thousands of algorithms or variations of algorithms building models on that same data set. And then it basically came up with a leaderboard of the top models in terms of their performance. And so it was a, in nature, a code-free way to develop these high-performing algorithms that otherwise would have taken days or weeks or months for advanced data scientists to, to build by hand. So yeah, it's it's basically automating there's a lot of variety of, of AI problems. This problem space that it originated in is called supervised machine learning, where you you know the outcome. LLMs and self-driving cars, that's other areas of the spectrum. But um, if you think about the use cases that could be addressed just with that area, I mean, it was like limitless, like lead scoring, fraud detection. We had sports teams looking for player performance. You know, who's likely to get injured, who's likely to move up levels in, you know, minor league baseball, fan behavior. So hedge funds doing trading models, like it was it was a lot. It, it's a double-edged sword because on one hand, you're um you're enamored by all the possible use cases and the TAM feels limitless. And on the other hand, it's very hard when you have a lack of specificity to train and enable, first off, a team of people to be aware of all those use cases, and then to bring a degree of um, specificity or differentiation to your messaging, because it can just, it's just very hard to train a team of people to build up a marketing department that is so use case driven, because at the end of the day, that's, that was the wedge that we took. Data scientists weren't necessarily lining up at the door to automate work that they felt very proud of. And that, and it's also uh, democratizing something that is uh, what was and still is like a very um, cherished and, and finite set of skills that, that we were kind of starting to broaden and, and open up the door on. So we were, we were taking an approach where we were going to department heads or heads of functions with use case-based messaging that automated machine learning or AI was was essentially powering the back end or or opening up the the potential for those use cases to be addressed either more accurately or or at scale. So it sounds like you had multiple personas you were dealing with, right? It was like I assume the data scientists sort of more directionally understood kind of the problem that you were actually trying to solve, but maybe the functional leaders, the marketing leader, or the sports coach or whatever was the one who might benefit from the output of the the models themselves. And so, yeah, how did you think about kind of your entry point into organizations? Were you always working through the data scientists? Would you work through the functional uh, leaders? Like, what did that sort of experimentation look like as you, as you kind of figured out the sales motion? So I'll get into the personas in a second, because think about the time I joined DataRobot. There's only 20 customers. Oftentimes, it's 
challenging because, you know, the founder or like there's the grand vision of what your product is trying to do. And you want to communicate that grand vision to like rally employees to get investors excited about it. So you have like on one hand, this like grand vision, like Insight Squared is like, we are going to power SMBs. Every SMB is going to become data-driven and, and we're going to be the platform to do it. And there's 2 million SMBs or I'm just making up the number, but like, so that's like this broad vision. And then I started to look at the CRM of who our actual customers were and it was all B2B SaaS companies. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. it was like, we're not selling to SMBs. Like that's... I know what SMBs are. Like I have barbershops and landscaping companies, you know, working outside right now. Like they're not buying our product. It's B2B SaaS companies, high growth. So I sort of refine, you know, your outreach and it's like, okay, if that's the motion, it's a little bit easier to narrow in and start to create some more efficient messaging and more efficient activities. So then when I go to Data Robot and I start to just take a look at the first 20 customers, Turns out like three of them were were fintechs that were using us for this uh, underwriting use case. And I wasn't there in the first year or two when the founder-led kind of approach acquired that two dozen kind of base. But I was like, okay, if if fintechs, you know, that at least gives me a base to start with. You know, I can build a list of fintechs and lenders and and start really honing in, even though we can solve all the world's problems here, I can find 250 lending companies, start to hit them with a really tight messaging around improving their underlying uh, underwriting models, which just has a very clear and distinct ROI for them. And if you start to kind of create little pockets of that type of approach, it takes like this very broad potential and you start to kind of become very use case market segment driven and, and narrow, you know, narrow the scope, which, which is helpful. And that, then there's the personas, but I think that has been, sometimes I'll meet with founders or I think about the founder led sale and founders are often wired to talk about their company from the fundraising lens and the fundraising mentality. And then you usually hire a salesperson in your first couple of salespeople. And I think it's, someone's got to point them in a direction that's a little bit narrower than maybe the grand vision of, of where where eventually you want to go. And then it starts to, to snowball from there. Yeah, no, we definitely like I even had that problem at Doc, right? Like we, you know, Doc is a really flexible platform. And I think of it as like, you know, any B2B company in the world, any companies working together in theory, you could do things within Doc, like even recruiting use cases or finance use cases. But then as I started going into founder-led sales and really getting into, okay, where's the most value we're providing? It was really sales, customer success teams, and specifically like onboarding and then kind of like, you know, enabling champions as part of the sale. And like, you know, we've kind of niched down over over the years to kind of, you know, go attack kind of that that problem set. And, you know, maybe in the future, we kind of broaden it back up. But that was a good learning for me because it just was hard, like figuring out the marketing messaging on the website that it got all muddy what do we say in sales conversations? It made things a lot more complicated when we tried to be horizontal as opposed to to focusing. And then you know traction was a lot harder. So yeah, that that story resonates yeah. quite a bit. And then and then you have the personas, right? And so that's obviously you know a horizontal layer on top of like a more narrow like segment based messaging or use case based messaging. And both Data Robot and Jellyfish, you know, have been top-down sales. And so that means a few things. One is you have to level up your communication. And I think whether it's myself or a lot of the reps that I've hired, having very strong business acumen, some of them have it naturally. Others have had you know the aptitude and coachability to just pick it up. But being very business-centric around zooming out and Let's just take the underwriting example. I'm not targeting a executive at a uh, lending company with automated machine learning messaging. I'm saying, hey, lenders like you typically do 50 to 100 million in underwriting volume a year. And we've seen case studies of our automated approach to model building have a two to four up percent uplift on their you know, incumbent 
underwriting model. And so for you, that would mean a one to $4 million lift. Are you interested in kind of taking a look at the challenger model or taking a look at what we could build? Like, so it's, it's very business centric and you'll have plenty of opportunities to peel back that business executives for the most part are, are where they are because they're often all very smart people. So they're going to quickly get into the brass tacks of like, how does this work? You know, I've been burned by vaporware, blah, blah, blah. Like they're going to have you quickly like get into the tech, but it's such a noisy environment out there right now. And the automation of sales and marketing has been a double-edged sword. It's, you know, orders of magnitude more noisy in terms of inbox noise. And so you have to be very to the point on your messaging and getting the first at bat with that level of seniority starts to open up the door in terms of how does this play for your team of leaders or your frontline team. Yeah, it's a great lesson. And like, you just need to tie things to to the business outcomes. And yeah, I've been in this trap too, where it's like, hey, look how cool, look at all the cool stuff my product does, but no one actually cares. That's just a means to an end. And you got to talk about the end, which is, okay, what is that outcome that you're driving in the business? And I imagine, yeah, your background as an equities researcher also helped help do that too, because you just really understood how businesses worked and understood where the value was created. Before we get into Jellyfish, I want to stay for a second, just kind of finishing up the data robot story. Like I noticed on the website, data robot works with like 40% of the Fortune 50, which is super impressive. And so like did the founders and did you sort of focus on super enterprise from day one? Was that more of a gradual move up market? How did you think about kind of like the segmentation from a business size perspective? So I was hired as the first, uh, what they called inside sales rep, which was basically now everyone's an inside sales rep. I don't care who you are. Like no one's doing steak dinners for the most part anymore. We're all over Zoom. But at that time, there was, you know, segmentation. There was the inside and the field. Field was dispersed in different regions. So I was hired probably as an experiment to see, you know, maybe there was two different visions. I know my CEO, Jeremy, he had a vision that we could actually sell this thing over Zoom. You know, he was a data scientist. He wanted to be able to measure, optimize. He, he was very oriented to scale. And I felt like he loved the idea that there was people that had good Salesforce hygiene. The number of at-bats and iterations was much higher. I know that that was, that was his vision. And then, you know, you contrast that with the field where uh, hard to measure, you know, you still got some of that relationship centricity and art, not a science type approach. So needless to say, I think I was hired as an experiment to see if they could sell it. My initial job was to just figure it out and do that in parallel of what the majority of the motion was built around, you know, one to 80, one to 100, like the four years that I was there. So I I kind of had a little segment of the business that was focused on outside the Fortune 2000. And, you know, we were doing 25, 50, 100K. 250k deals over Zoom, which, you know, even five, six years ago, seven years ago was like somewhat doubted if that was like possible. I think we did a very good job of, you know, value selling again, like remote or not in in nature. But definitely the focus when you think about moving the needle for big companies and being able to tie your value to it, probably about 80% enterprise. And then I built up a team in Boston and London and Singapore that was focused on mid-market, you know, typically outside the Fortune 2000. Very cool. And what was that experience like? Because you grew, I think, the sales team to like 20, 30 reps. And, and from my understanding, this was your first time at least managing a team of that size. Like, what was that kind of personal journey for you like? And how did you sort of learn how to kind of manage a sales team that big? Yeah, still learning. <laughs> I'd say a few things. One is, you know, Data Robot had a culture of like hard work. And I know that that's kind of cliche and somewhat of a trope, but like it was definitely for starting at the top. Jeremy, just an absolute grinder. Guy was always working and that permeated down in the culture. And so I think having that as like a basis of expectation setting, Data Robot, they raised a lot of money. So there was no shortage of resources to throw at things. And I'll contrast that to probably a more traditional like scale up experience with with jellyfish. But getting back to the question of like what it was like, you know, 
I was basically just in the trenches with the team, you know, in Boston for the most part, or going out visiting London or Singapore a few weeks at a time. And I felt like because I had walked in their shoes not too long ago, there was not an element of ivory tower. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, for better or worse, and I'm starting to grow out of this now as a sales leader, but like co-selling, like I was on the phones with them, strategizing with calls, helping them close deals, like very much like in the trenches with them, which at the very least, like I believe earned a lot of trust and respect. And when I'd ask the team to try things or to do things, there was at least the belief that like I was doing it from the front with them versus not necessarily walking in their shoes. And so a lot of experimentation, a lot of trust, you know, uh, with the team and the culture, there wasn't a ton of structure to support much, you know, a ton of oversight, but it was a lot of osmosis and a lot of just being in there with them that at least helped, I think, weather the storm because there's a lot of bumps and ups and downs. That's what we're here talking about. And so I think having a team that trusts you is a superpower when it comes to them riding out the storm and believing that, uh, you know, there's going to be a positive outcome on the other side. That's, that's a lot of the reason why you're doing it. Yeah, I think one of the best attributes, as you described, of like startup leaders is being a servant leader, right? Being on the front lines with your employees, showing them how it's done, making mistakes alongside them. And yeah, it's great to kind of hear hear that story from your perspective at a data robot. Yeah. When I look back on my one-on-ones with COO Chris or CRO Rich, like mentors to me, Sean Gardner and BizDev, like when I look back at my one-on-ones with them, the value that I got that I'm now like bringing with me to Jellyfish, we can go into that, is like they had all been through a high growth run before. You know, a lot of them came from Netiza. Sean was at Alteryx. Like it was almost like therapy sessions where, and I, and actually Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy did this as well, where, you know, it's almost like I liken it to like war where everyone comes in. You know, and they're just like, we're getting killed out there. Like people are dying left and right. It's bloody. We're getting it from all angles. And it's having that sense of like calmness and groundedness to be like, we are in no different shape. Like this is part of the ride is so strengthening and like grounding to go to take the chaos that's happening around you and turn it from like, I need to control this chaos or like things are falling apart here to knowing that that's just part of the rebuilding and rebirth that you have to do to like scale and then pause and rejigger and get ready for the next run. Like that's all part of the journey. And so like them instilling that on me and seeing that run, you know, I do feel like I've brought that perspective now to jellyfish where pretty much the same time period probably a little bit earlier in many ways, but it's even helpful for me to tell myself like, this is just, it's part of the ride. If you have that mentality, you don't let as much, you know, affect you and you can just focus on building and and getting better. Yeah. Let's, let's get into jellyfish. So you, you joined as like the, the VP of sales. I'd love to know kind of why you joined and, and what was the state of the company and the sales team when you joined? Yeah. I'll go into just a quick origin story. I was in Singapore on a hike with one of the intern engineers from the US, Mohawk actually. And I was on a hike with him and I very distinctly remember asking him as an engineer, I'm like, how do you know what everyone's working on? Who is good? Like I could list my team from like one to 30 on like five different metrics. I can tell you our conversion rate, sales cycle by rep. I'm like, how do you know who's good? How do you guys know who's working on what? And the answer was so hand wavy to me at the time that I'm like, I don't know. I'm just like generally skeptical of, um, I'm just like a natural skeptic. And so when I met with Phil, who's one of the co-founders at jellyfish, I was really, really, and I, I had lived this pain at data robot where I saw us go from 30 engineers when I started to 400 or 500. I, I don't even remember. It's like, I was there around 80 employees left at like 1200. So the company had gotten so big and I had kind of seen this pain of 
scaling an engineering team in this chaos, but not having the same kind of uh, infrastructure that sales or marketing has had just through legacy and time of amidst that chaos, you can still hold yourself accountable and measure these certain metrics to know where to press, where to double down on. Like, So every company is unique and there's unique challenges, but at least the way that you're measuring and communicating progress is industry-wise is like fairly consistent. So I saw that engineering was really nascent and having much data to defend or to, to make these decisions, especially at scale. 2020 came around. And when I met with Phil, I was very intrigued by the problem that they were solving. And they, they, they built the product. You know, Phil, Andrew, and Dave were all ex-Endeca. So they had worked together in the past, often leading product and engineering teams there. And they had kind of built this out of the belief that engineering was like the last black box within an enterprise as it related to you know, analytical rigor and, and data-driven decision-making, you know, I kind of liken it to that field sales mentality of like, let's say pre-Salesforce of just somehow deals were closed before Salesforce. It's not like Salesforce helped people close deals. It's not like Jellyfish is helping people, you know, build product that they weren't building before. But prior to this space emerging, there was definitely a lot of anecdotes and instinct that I think is still going to be there and is always going to be there just like a great seller. Sometimes you can't put your finger on it. It's just like that person's got it, you know, and you can tell. But when you're trying to manage a team at scale and operate, you know, in a more efficient manner, I was very bought into the belief that Jellyfish or a company was going to emerge and help software kind of development catch up to the rest of the business. And so, so you joined the company as a sales leader, like, where do you start? Like, were you focused on kind of refining the pitch and how you explain jellyfish? Like I saw, you know, one article that explained it as, yeah, Salesforce for engineering, or are you more focused on kind of process or hiring kind of like, take us back to kind of how you thought about kind of building out the sales team. Yeah. Where, where do you focus? Where, where it all begins, Alex. The yeah. BDR. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was trying out things on my own about messaging it's a blessing and a curse that I didn't come from the dev space before. If I came from the dev space, I would have had a warm network to call on to give myself some at-bats. I didn't really have that. Data science leaders didn't really interact. You know, I, I didn't have a deep network of CTOs or anyone to call on. But I, it kind of went back to time and time again. It's like first principles. I just want to like start with understanding it myself, whether that's what a cold email looks like or a cold call or a cold LinkedIn message, and then sitting on the reps, listening to hear how they were pitching it, and then trying to kind of iterate and experiment. And And the only way that you can really do that early on is um, at-bats. Like you got to get yourself at-bats to see what works and to, to iterate. So yeah, so you asked me what I did. Obviously, uh, what was new with Jellyfish was um, at Data Robot, I grew the team organically. I was the first hire I think maybe similar to how you grew marketing at Lattice, where everyone that came after me was kind of like interviewed by me after me. I kind of inherited a team of five, you know, three AEs and two BDRs. And that was very new for me in terms of coming in cold. And so there was a lot of like just relationship building, empathy and understanding of what the last, whether it was one or two months or people that have been there for like a year kind of in the trenches with the founders, there was a lot of um, just understanding and listening. And then there was just a lot of experimentation from first principles of trying to get myself at bats or join calls with the reps. You know, thankfully the two BDRs were there to get some new at bats teed up. And I was kind of just seeing what worked. And, you know, a lot of that was um, realizing kind of honing in specifically on a few key themes that you didn't necessarily need the whole pitch to know, like visibility, you know, board reporting. And my first week at Jellyfish was the first week of COVID. So there was also just like, everyone just went immediately remote. And, you know, there was definitely a stroke of luck where that first year, pretty much every company was fully remote. 90% of them had no experience in doing this. And so we were tying ourselves onto some of the topical themes like, you know, remote versus hybrid or, you know, ensuring that your managers are equipped 
with tools that can help them, you know, manage and coach their teams because they had kind of COVID and specifically remote work was definitely a forcing function that pulled the entire engineering management space forward probably by like four or five years. And there was definitely a stroke of luck there. And it was my job or it was our job to like take advantage of that window with, with testing messaging and helping people solve these problems that that was kind of going on in real time. I know selling like developer tools is often really hard. Like it's hard for salespeople to kind of get the attention of the engineers and developers, but it sounds like it might be a different sale for jellyfish because you're going after like engineering leaders. Like, yeah. How do you think about catching their attention? And, And am I right that it's kind of a little bit different than your maybe traditional developer tool sale? It is. It's it's a lot different. A blessing and a curse. You know, we are heavily dependent on outbound. You know, when I started, it was like 100% outbound. Last year, it was 80% of our pipeline was outbound. This year, it's it's 70%. So we've got a marketing engine. Kyle, as you know, he's he's heating things up for us. But when you think about the personas that we're reaching out to, VPs of engineering, CTOs, CFOs, they're busy running teams. They're literally in Zoom calls like all day. They're not necessarily exploring the space, especially a new space. And so we need to like insert ourselves into their purview somehow. And that's kind of, again, with that executive-centric messaging that I was talking about with, with DataRobot. The blessing is that a lot of people that are vying for the attention of these executives are not able to say that they directly solve them and their team of leaders' problems. You know. You know, whether it's a log, you know, a log monitoring solution or, you know, whatever cloud consumption, you know, monitoring or optimization, whatever it is for, for many of them, the developer space is solving like the developer's problem. And so that's where you get like the freemium motion or the PLG motion, you know, swipe on a credit card consumption, one person or one team can do this. So I think we had an advantage where we could look a CTO in the eyes or like his inbox and be like, you probably just got out of your board meeting and got beat up for having stoplights and emojis instead of like hard numbers. (laughs) It's like we could actually talk to them empathetically about the problems that they were either facing directly and personally or that they were shielding from their, their teams. You know, so you know, in 2021 and 2022, there's a ton of pressure on engineering leaders. It's like, what is your team doing? Like the CEO used to be able to walk the halls, at least see them in there. Now the engineering leaders were facing pressure about return to office policies. They're not necessarily reading everyone in on that. They're trying to fight that battle at the level that they're at. And here we are with a case study that shows, you know, we can justify that their team is, you know, we did a whole uh, report on engineering remote productivity we actually found that they you know there was very little impact or sometimes more impact of more productive teams that were remote so we're we're inserting ourselves into a problem space that only usually a small amount of people in these organizations might might be aware of but we still had to fight through the inbox noise and then a lot of our job kind of turns to buyer enablement which is organizations or leaders are not used to buying top-down solution. They're used to swiping their credit card or a consumption model. So there's a lot of enablement that has to go along with the, the sales process around the business justification, the business case. Here's how you talk to your CFO around R&D spend and what it means to move the needle here. So that's been a, a long journey for us as we're like refining and have refined that that down. Outbound, heavy. And I think double-edged sword, we've been able to kind of really solve these pain points and problems that the leaders and leadership teams are facing, but they're not used to buying a lot of software in this manner. And so that when we do get them to the table and excited about the potential, you know, it's our jobs to kind of help them, you know, make the case and and, and bring us in both from a business justification perspective, as well as team and, and culture, you know, messaging and justification as well. I'd love to know the the tactics of how you approach buyer enablement because it's something I think a lot about with with Doc. And actually, it was kind of the origin story with Doc too, where we were selling into HR folks, and then you know we needed the HR person to go convince the C suite and the managers and all the other folks that okay, they needed to to invest 
into you know performance management platform. Yeah, like what does buyer enablement actually look like? Are you just creating case studies for them to forward along? Or are there like spreadsheet calculators you're sending? Are you joining into, into yeah. like internal meetings, co-selling? Yeah, can you take us behind the scenes? I don't know how relevant this would be for Doc, but I'll tell you, as we've moved up market, we're now selling into the publicly traded company space. Like basically the, the team is is going into a publicly traded software company's investor relations page, pulling down the 10K. We're feeding that 10K into ChatGPT. We're asking ChatGPT to identify what their annual R&D spend is, what the top three initiatives for their R&D department or technology teams are. We're utilizing kind of the annual R&D spend as our core. And then you can take this premise and it scales all the way down to a 50-person startup, but it's super powerful when you have external factors or, or data that validates it. But our core premise is if you have a team of 100... Let's just use a small example. If you have a team of 100 developers making $100,000 a year, you are spending $10 million a year to build your product, to build features that make your customers successful, to widen the moat from your competition, to move your business forward. Like That is the backbone of a technology-centric enterprise is investing in your people to build these amazing products. Our message to these executive teams is that right now, that $10 million spend is often being managed in a very anecdote-driven, non-scientific way. People raising their hands saying, this team is underwater, this team spread too thin. And so without you know revealing too much, we've created some assessments and some collaborative exercises with our customers that help the CTO, the head of engineering, the CFO all get on the same page kind of around that core message, which is Jellyfish is going to be a force multiplier to what's often a very, very large spend relative to almost any organization. And we'll do proof of concepts and technology validation that just helps clear a very low bar as it relates to moving the needle. One, two, three, four percent on on that annual number is is still, you know, pretty significant. It's a very cool story and a very smart way to do the ROI analysis with the, the chat GPT thing. I, I love that. I need to think about how I do that for, for, for Doc ourselves. And like, so the jellyfish sale, right? You're not, they're not getting their hands into the product before they buy. It's a top down sale. You're doing kind of like the pitch deck and, and buyer enablement thing. But then I imagine like the handoff between sales and customer success is really important because then it's like, okay. Sales team sets up, okay, the outcomes, and then you're kind of handing it off to the customer success team to actually go help them achieve those outcomes and get, get it all set up. Like, how do you think about kind of enabling the CX team internally to kind of, you know, make sure the customer hits their goals? Yeah, we still do quite a, fit, a bit of POCs. To your point, though, they're, they're mainly focused on de-risking the investment. It's not like they're fully configured or trained. So it's not like a developer tool where... This is already used and it's like a consumption, you know, model uh, in terms of how you scale it or when it gets handed off to CS. But we are often plugging in the systems and using that to support the, the business case. But as it relates to the handoff, it kind of goes back to that challenge I mentioned with Data Robot, which is um, the breadth of use cases is wide. And that's quite exciting. It's exciting to the company. Because you're like, we can sell to everyone. <laughs> uh, or in Jellyfish's case, we can we can solve all of these different use cases. And it's exciting to the customer because they don't want to buy a point solution for every problem. You don't want to buy one thing for your forecasting and you know scenario planning. You don't want to buy another thing for your cost capitalization reporting. So they like the idea of, of a platform that can help them solve all the problems. I'd say what we're working on now and what is vital to the success from a customer experience perspective, as well as scalability and um, efficiency perspective for Jellyfish is to work with the customer in light of all that excitement and, and hone in on kind of like a less is more focus about where they want to start. And so I really think when you, you're still speaking in outcomes, but 
it takes kind of discipline from the seller and like a lot of trust that you build with your champion and the customer to almost like slow things down or pull back on the expectation setting to say, listen, I know we can do all these things for you guys. And that's why you're buying jellyfish is that you eventually want to do all these things. But for you and I to get off on a good foot here, or for us to have a quick win in the next 30, 60, 90 days, we've really got to hone in on one thing that is going to be important to you, important to the business, and give us kind of the cultural momentum, organizational momentum to build on top of that with these other expanded use cases. But we got to just pick one thing to start. And that can be challenging because there's multiple personas involved in a sale. Frontline managers want one thing, executive wants the other. But definitely, I'd say establishing that focus and then that continuity from the handoff. You know, I think we're still trying to slow ourselves down and slow the customer down because it's easy to get enamored by by the potential there. And so we're, we're kind of coming up with some plays, coming up with some focused uh, implementations that, that narrow the scope and trade off kind of breadth versus depth uh, initially. And then moving back up like towards the top of the funnel and you touched on it a little bit, you know, the jellyfish was like a hundred percent outbound and now it's like 70% and shout out Kyle, he's doing a good, good job. I'd love to know like what, uh, what's your relationship like with Kyle, you know, Kyle Lacey and, and the rest of the marketing team? Like how do you work with, with the marketing leader and how do you two kind of partner together? What marketing has done really well for us in light of what might on, on paper or at the call out of 70-30 split, right? They have prioritized and done a really good job of providing my team with collateral that we are using to both bring people into our funnel and to accelerate through the funnel. And so I'll give you an example. Five board slides for a CTO. We, we built a template for engineering leaders to start to build around in terms of what they show up to a board meeting with. And so we made a PowerPoint, they can edit it, put their logo on it, but it's a really valuable, it's probably been one of our most highest performing pieces of content organically, but it's not like a CTO, like I mentioned, is necessarily going out there searching for that. So my team will use that piece of collateral in their outbound messaging, send you, hey, do you mind if I send you some... um, some board slides that our CTOs are using to kind of communicate their teams to their their board and their uh, C-suite. So on paper, that's an outbound meeting, but that's driven by some very high value, you know, high touch collateral that, that marketing's producing. And so I think this executive centric sale has changed a little bit when you think about attribution, like it's certainly like, Kyle's goals are pipe goals. He doesn't care who puts their name on it. Same with me. Like Kyle and I have a shared pipe goal. We know what our revenue targets are. We have a good understanding of what pipe coverage we need going into a quarter and how much pipe that we have to generate this quarter to give us that coverage. So if pipe coverage is low or pipe gen is low, there's really very little finger pointing or stepping away from the problem as it relates to... Because I know that there's more to the story than that attribution. And he knows that that too. So we're both trying to be held accountable to certain targets within that split. But it's very much like a shared problem or when we're hitting our numbers, which knock on wood, like things are going well right now. Marketing is sharing in, in our successes as well. I think that's the exact right mentality. I know at Lattice, we always said one team, one dream was sort of how we thought about marketing and sales because like the buying journey is just not linear. It doesn't actually look like that, you know, marketing funnel that everyone looks at. It, you know, there might be a marketing touch point and it goes to outbound and it goes back to marketing. It's all it's over so the place. Hard. And so, yeah. yeah, it's a mess. You, yeah. know, you know, as a marketing leader, it's, it's so hard. And we've got these outbound to inbounds where the team is making a bunch of noise within an account. That CTO is not necessarily going to want to take a demo with the sales rep off the bat. So they'll send someone and it's like, was that an inbound meeting or outbound? So I think the lines are definitely getting more blurred when you think about it, especially as you move up market. But, you know, thankful that, you know, Kyle and team, you know, Kyle came in with that approach. I think I'm embracing it and also bearing the fruits of their labor with a lot of the sales success here. 
And then it's kind of a, a snowball effect where, you know, we sign up customers, we get to then do case studies with them. Those case studies fuel more marketing content and, you know, community. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been good. Though it's, it's easy to say when the things are good, it's, it's when the going gets tough. That's when the no ad, you know, that's when the one team, one dream gets yeah, tested. The figure putting starts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, we, yeah. We've been fortunate always being tested, but just focused on, you know, scaling at this point and, you know, scaling up that, that function. He's only been there for, for a little bit less than a year, I think. I'd love to kind of end today's conversation with just a couple questions around career advice. And I think where I'd want to start is like, you've spent your career selling into kind of technical personas, like first data science, and you were selling AI and machine learning stuff uh, at Data Robot, and now selling into engineering leaders, um, you know, at, at Jellyfish. Like, like, what advice would you give to other AEs who are kind of selling into technical products that are, you know, a little over their head? Like, how do you think about kind of preparing yourself to be able to sell to those personas and those types of products? I'd say two things. One is you don't necessarily need to know the tech as much as you need to know the problems that your tech is solving for. If you can't wrap your head around the problems that your tech is solving for, then it's, it might be a red flag that the problem itself is not robust enough. You know, if, if you can't get it, it, there's often a possibility that it's not just you who doesn't get it. And so you don't necessarily need to know the inner workings of the tech or be an expert in machine learning or dev tools. But when you're interviewing with a company or when you started a company, the best reps that I've seen are digging into the case studies. They're regurgitating customer stories and getting customer stories down like and then just through osmosis, you know, if you get yourself enough at bats, that's the other thing. Like you need to be able to, even through learning through osmosis on the tech side, whether it's through your SE or a more seasoned rep, like you still need to have these conversations to learn. And so it's probably like set yourself up with strong prospecting and outbound skills, trade notes with people who are doing it well. Make sure that that's a skill that you always have that you're sharpening and doing well with because conversations and the volume of conversations can open up so much more development, not let alone like hitting your number. Uh, and then the second thing is focus just as much or more on the customer stories and the, the basic problems that you're unlocking or solutions that you're enabling as, as you are the, the tech. And so, yeah, that's, those are probably the two main ones. Well, thank you so much for such an awesome conversation today, Ben. I think there were so many good nuggets in here when it comes to like outcome-based selling around technical products. And I think, uh, yeah, I don't know, a lot to learn from. I'm excited to listen back on this episode. If if people want to reach out and find you or are interested in even buying Jellyfish, where where can they find you? Yeah, Ben at jellyfish.co is the, is the email. Shout out to Kyle. We just got a brand new website. So, you know, ch- check great. out the website too, jellyfish.co. Yeah, Alex. Appreciate you having me on. Excited to uh, think Doc is a great product, and you know, offline, let's we should talk about you know that handoff process that you slipped in there because right, I think it's a demo. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> yeah. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakov. Thank you for listening.